0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org podcast listener supported WNYC
2: studios
3: oh, wait you're
0: listening <laughs> Okay All right Okay All right <clears throat> You are listening. listening to Radio Lab, Lab. Radio Lab from <laughs>
4: WNYC
5: C-
0: C- C- Yeah
4: C- <laughs> <laughs> to play a uh, podcast that we made back in 2012. This is a show that I believe has disappeared from the RSS feed, and I thought we'd bring it back because it captures a feeling that I think maybe we all need a little bit more of these days. Um, Here's how we started the show. Okay, hello, hello.
5: Hello. Hello, hello.
0: <laughs> hey, how are
4: you <laughs> we are super super excited to talk with you
0: oh well, same with me I'm sorry about the delay and so on um,
4: oh that's fine no quite it's some a, busy days. life is crazy life is crazy yeah I know but uh you were so enthusiastic so I like, just <laughs> I, I need to talk to these guys they really mean it <laughs> this is alex alexander Gamme. 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 are you norwegian all the way back yeah typical Norwegian you know, if typical, includes things like... Biking in Sahara and uh, climbing Everest and, and things like that. He's kind of a uh, professional adventurer. Mm. And we got him into the studio because he made a video last year on one of his trips. i got to tell you this video, it, it, it's maybe the most amazing internet video I have ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> So let me just set the scene for you. Okay. What you see in the video is this guy, Alex, kind of moving along. This, he's on skis. This snowy snowscape. Mm. He's filming himself. He's got the camera in his right hand. Where is he exactly? Antarctica. Oh. He's on a three-month trek to the South Pole and back by himself. And what he'd been doing is every couple of days on his trip, you know, every 200 kilometers or so, he would bury stuff in the snow. Some, some fuel and, uh, and sometimes a little bit of gear that I didn't use. Was that just to lighten your load? Yeah. You know, because every ounce of unneeded weight has to go. Sure. So, in this video, it's day 86. Almost three months since I left. That's three months of walking 10 hours a day. Then I lost almost 25 kilos. 55 pounds. He's exhausted.
5: Oh.
4: He's come upon his last cache. So,
6: on the last cache where this uh, video is captured.
4: What you see is Alex kneel in the snow, start to dig.
2: (sighs) I'm telling that I'm quite hungry.
4: Whatever's in this last cache in the snow, it's been three months since he buried it. So I didn't really recall what was
5: there.
4: He hopes it's something good. So he digs up this bag of stuff, starts rifling through it. Some vaseline, some zinc ointment.
0: It's just a mess. Nothing. It's, it's pretty much all trash. But
4: then... YEAH! 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 <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> what is it? He holds up. <laughs> A double pack of cheese doodles.
5: <laughs> <Yeah>!
4: <laughs> then he throws it up in the air. Yeah! <laughs> and then this is, this is my favorite part. He just freezes. And he's staring off into the distance almost like, did that happen? Is it real? So he starts to dig some more, and then. <laughs>
2: what was it this time?
4: A huge <laughs> chocolate bar. It's milk chocolate, <laughs> and then it's just like he finds Mentos. Are I find more and more and more. (laughs) Have you ever been that happy in your life? Well, I've been thinking about that. When did you shout last time you were so happy? I think that's why we've been watching this video over and over again. Because none of us can remember. (laughs) It's like what stands between you and that feeling is a really interesting question. Yeah, it's uh, three months with hunger. Actually, I think the reason I like this video so much is not just because he's happy. It's that he somehow stumbled into this moment of perfection. It's just like a perfect situation. (laughs) By being so tired and so hungry and finding such a stash of candy that he had forgotten that he left, (laughs) he created a moment of just absolute complete bliss. In this hour on Radio Lab we're going to be searching for moments like Alex had up in Antarctica. We're going to be searching for bliss. <laughs> bliss of all different sorts. Perfect moments, perfect worlds. The kind of bliss that slips right through your fingers and the kind of bliss that just might last. And last. And last. Just before we go to the first story uh, in this episode, uh, I wanted to mention that this whole hour was produced by a guy named Tim Howard, who uh, was a longtime producer at Radio Lab, and then went on to become the editor of an amazing podcast called Reply All. And uh, I asked him, "What occurs to you as you as you listen to it again?"
6: Hmm. There's this moment that jumps out at me where you hear. So this this woman Shirley McNaughton, who's like a, a you know key character in the story um she just radiates so much generosity and love and i just find it so freaking moving mm. like she goes through a lot in this story like she she really is just like challenged in incredible and kind of impossible ways that i think would turn a lot of people really bitter and and I wonder how I would react in, in in with everything that she went through if I went through it myself. Yeah. Um, and it's really it's really nice to actually think about that, like how I would deal with such a such an incredibly challenging situation, and could I myself keep such like love and admiration for this guy Charles Bliss? Mm-hmm. And I I just find it so so inspiring that she somehow stayed open-hearted yeah as i listened back i was just like man i just feel so lucky that 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 i that i got a chance to talk to her i don't know that's no kind of pledge drivey but but honestly that that was like a feeling that i had
4: okay here is that original story it begins with a box of tapes uh all right so check it out this right, is so we're in my a... office and you've got a rectangular package here what is, what is it, it is? is a very old looking
6: box <laughs> Doesn't look like much, it's just about like fifteen cassettes. Tape number six singing and playing to friends in America. Okay, so this is Charles. Charles Caisio Bliss. An amazing character. And that's Richard. Richard You. He's the fellow who gave me the cassettes. He was a friend of Charles. Yeah.
4: So these were just, um, like, just sitting in his attic or something? Garage, I think. He looked like, I suppose,
1: a little gnome, a little leprechaun almost.
5: To life, to life,
1: He was short, bald, and laughter the whole time.
5: He was a lovable character,
6: simple as that. This is my favorite one.
5: Wait a second.
4: Just explain why we're talking about this guy. Sure.
6: Because these tapes tell... An amazing story about a guy who really embodied his name. And he tried to save the world, but ultimately just tried too hard.
5: The turning point in point my life came in 1908.
6: We can start the story here. Uh, this is from a lecture that he gave decades later. So the story goes, it's 1908. And he's a little kid living in what's now the Ukraine. Okay. And his name is Karl Blitz. Not Charles Blitz? Not Charles Blitz, Carl Blitz, B L I T Z. That's his original name. Uh-huh. And uh, little Carl?
2: Was fascinated by tales of discovering adventure. <laughs> My name is Erica Okrent.
6: Erica wrote about Charles Bliss in this great book called
2: *In the Land of Invented Languages*.
6: Getting back to the story, one day she says, "When Carl was 11,
2: a lecture came through town about some
5: Austin polar expedition
2: polar to expedition.
6: explorers, Slides. talking about their trek across the North Pole." And he was so inspired by what he saw and heard at that lecture that even decades later, he couldn't talk about it.
5: And my father took me to this. Excuse me. <laughs>
6: without getting choked up.
5: My emotions are me. My father took me to this lecture, and there I saw men who left their warm homes to secure existence and went out into the Arctic, into the icy snow, in almost certain death, For what? For what? For in search of knowledge, for an idea.
6: As he tells it on those tapes, That was the beginning of his big idea that was going to change the world.
5: Fast forward a few years. I came to Vienna after the First World War.
2: He did end up going to the Technical University of Vienna.
5: I was suddenly discovered to be the best mandolin player in Austria, and one time I played with a full opera orchestra under the direction of the composer Franz Schrecker. Ah, those were the days.
6: And then everything changed. In 1938,
5: German troops swarm across the Austrian border on
2: historic... The Nazis came to town. The Nazis came to town. He was sent to Dachau and then Buchenwald.
6: You know, the concentration
2: camps.
5: One, one, one feeling, one wish, one desire to end my life.
6: All around him, people were being worked to death or outright exterminated. But his wife, Claire, was a German Catholic. With connections.
5: And Claire, my good wife, smuggled my mandoline and my guitar into the concentration camp. I became so famous among the Nazis that, for instance, our blockfearer would come into our barack and say, Blitz, spiel was auf der mandoline, aber zweistimmig.
6: And you could say that it was here in Buchenwald that Karl started to develop his ideas about language, about the ways that you can manipulate words. For instance there was this one song that all the prisoners sang.
5: The Buchenwald one of the saddest songs I can ever mention.
6: Had the saddest lyrics in the world. At a certain point, Karl started to play around with the song, you know, he'd swap out some of the sad lyrics for some jokes. Sing it for his fellow prisoners.
5: And they laughed and laughed and laughed and forgot for a few minutes that they are in the darkest and the most terrible homes on earth.
6: And on the flip side, every evening, evening. the guards would march all the prisoners outside, force them to stand there in the cold in front of these loudspeakers, make them listen to these speeches. (laughs) Speeches of Hitler and Goebbels screaming Nazi slogans. Like,
5: Deutschland, die
6: which means Germany above all.
5: There are certain words which make you make, which drives you mad.
2: But after about a year, his wife somehow wrangled a, a British visa for him, and he gets out.
5: Thank heavens, those dreadful times are gone, and now I can play here for you and improvisation as it comes into my mind.
2: In 1939, he went to Britain.
5: And got a job as a manager of a factory. But he arrived in England
2: just as...
6: The Blitz begins. The Germans start to bomb every major city in England.
5: The noise that you hear at the moment is the sound of the air raid siren.
6: And every time he'd introduce himself to somebody new, they'd, they'd shudder. That can't be your name, yeah. because of like Blitzkrieg. It had that association. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you
5: can't go around here in Great Britain with a name like Blitz. And so I changed from the warlike Blitz to the peaceful Bliss.
6: That was how he became Charles Bliss.
2: Bliss has all the right associations. So he went forward with the feeling of, of that he was now Bliss and would bring happiness to the world.
6: And a year later, he and his wife end up in China, in Shanghai, where there was a big population of exiled Jews.
2: Shanghai was the only place that would take them at that time.
5: And there in China, and there in China, I got the opportunity of my lifetime.
6: And now we come to his big idea.
5: I realized, but I did not know, that the Chinese have a different way of writing.
2: He became enraptured by the Chinese writing that he saw The Chinese use symbols, and each symbol is a
6: word And he writes about having this epiphany when he saw the Chinese symbol for man
2: He saw that the Chinese written form of man sort of looks like a man
6: It looks like a sick figure man, and it means man He doesn't even know what the Chinese word for man is He doesn't know how to say man, but that doesn't matter He is skipping the word and going directly into the meaning.
2: So here was a way of getting beyond language. You could think the word in any language if you see it in the symbol.
6: And that was a revelation. Why? Well, I mean, think back to the concentration camps when they were outside in front of those loudspeakers listening to Hitler's saying stuff like Deutschland über alles. You know, Germany above all. That phrase, mm-hmm. Charles knew that it actually predated the Nazis.
5: That was coined a hundred years earlier, in 1848.
6: And originally it was meant as a rallying cry to bring together all of these separate principalities.
5: Kingdom of Bavaria, the Kingdom of, Bavarian, the Kingdom of Saxonia, the Kingdom
6: That spoke German, but these were not one country. So when they said Deutschland über alles, it meant unification.
5: A unified Germany.
6: The nation above the states. Oh, so it wasn't necessarily an aggressive thing, no.
5: But, but Hitler turned this around.
6: Hitler changed the meaning. Instead of the nation above all states, he changed it to the nation...
5: above all the countries the world.
6: ...above all other nations. Oh. So you see what happened. This phrase that started meaning one thing, unification, yeah, became the opposite. Yeah. This is what the Nazis did.
5: False words. Lies.
6: They would bend words to obscure the truth of what they were doing. Extermination. They'd call it solution. By doing that, as he saw it, they were able to convince good, sane people, his neighbors, to go along with the genocide.
5: And I realized that something must be done to make language more true to nature.
2: Words were the problem. Words made people do cruel things to each other. They
5: tear our society
2: apart. Words were dangerous instruments. They
5: cause violence. They cause wars.
6: So when he saw the Chinese symbol for man, he thought, this might be the
5: answer. And the idea came up to me that I would should uh, invent symbols. Like the Chinese symbols, but even clearer. Which are so simple and pictorial that even children can read them.
2: If he could sit down and work it out, he would look at the symbol and know what it meant instantly, regardless of what language you spoke. You wouldn't even need words, which he felt could be you manipulated. You could just have the symbol. And get straight to the, the truth of the matter.
6: And the way he saw it, right off the bat, you'd have all of these benefits.
5: Frenchmen and Finns, Englishmen and Estonians.
6: Language barriers would be out the window.
2: Everything from traffic accidents to health problems. Could be avoided, he thought. If his symbol system would just be adopted.
6: He had this vision that
1: high-level political and commercial negotiations would be done in symbols.
6: Did he say anything as grand as, like, war wouldn't happen?
2: Constantly.
6: And even, of course...
2: He reckoned Hitler wouldn't have happened, basically, that if the German people had understood
1: the symbols, they wouldn't have copped Goebbels' propaganda. Now, that's a pretty tall
2: order, but it's, it did seem to be what he thought. Everything could be cured by this system. He's the biggest dreamer ever. Yeah. How did he go about doing this? He started working out what the basic lines and shapes would be. He also wanted to make sure you could produce it with a typewriter, so it had to be a limited set of shapes out of which everything could be created.
6: Okay, so he works on it for seven years. Seven years? And he comes up with that. Wow, that is a big one. (laughs) This massive book called...
2: Bliss Symbolics.
6: Semantology. Illogical writing for an illogical world. That says it all. Where he explains the logic of his system. For example, here, here's a symbol for sword, which looks exactly like a sword. And then the sword plus a forward arrow means attack. I buy it. And then if you see a symbol for a sword and another symbol for a sword and they're crossed, that means war. So that's the idea that you take these
4: basic elemental symbols and combine them? Exactly. All right, here's another one. This symbol here is like the top half of a circle, like a little rainbow, but just
6: one line. That means mind. Mind. It looks like the top of a skull. Ah. Now, if I were to take that symbol for mind and I were to go like this, I were to put inside it the question mark. That means... Um, I don't know, or I'm... Doubt. Doubt. And and there are also, you know, ways to indicate verbs and adjectives and first person, second person, the past, the future. But kind of the one thing that it did that no other language or symbol system or anything has attempted to do, at least as far as I know, is that it would make clear when something was um, what he called a human evaluation, you know, basically an opinion, Hmm. and... What you would do is you'd put this little this little V symbol and you'd put it above the symbol. And why why V? Well, because you know how V is balanced on a point and it's unstable, it wobbles. To him, that represents opinions, human evaluations, anything that comes out of the mind. Hmm. Or take metaphors.
5: If you say something which is a metaphor.
6: Metaphor, as he says.
5: You must put up the metaphor sign.
6: To alert the reader, do not take this literally.
5: Stop! Metaphor ahead.
4: Not exactly bulletproof, but I can, I can see the, the thinking there. I, I actually think it's pretty impressive. And Okay, so what happens next?
6: Well, after he finishes this, and he and his wife are living in Australia at the time.
2: They spent all their savings on producing this book and sent it out to...
6: Professors, government officials. Heads of state. Something like 6,000 people.
2: And they waited for the orders to start rolling in.
6: And um, no response. From anybody.
2: And then they had nothing.
4: Can't say I didn't see that coming. Yeah.
2: And with great disappointment, Charles went to work as a welder in a factory.
1: At General Motors Holden's, he was working on the production line almost as
6: a robot. And a year later, his wife died
2: you know, he had fought in World War I, he had been in a concentration camp, he had lived in exile, but he says this was the lowest point of his life.
6: Until one day, 1971.
2: This, as he said, this letter floated onto his desk with this picture of this beautiful dimpled child proudly using
3: his symbols. Yeah, it... it It was a poster. A poster. A a poster.
6: This is Shirley. Shirley McNaughton. And at the time, she was a nurse at a place called the OCCC.
3: The Ontario Crippled Children's Mm Centre, a name that we were very happy to leave behind us.
6: They've since changed the name. I
3: started there in 1968.
6: And Shirley was part of this group of teachers and nurses worked with these kids
3: who suffered from cerebral palsy. If you have cerebral palsy, it's the motor control from the brain that's been affected. Which meant that they had trouble moving their arms or legs.
6: And even in some cases... They couldn't speak. They couldn't form words. And then a film that was made of this class... You see these young kids. Children from five to seven. All sitting in wheelchairs. And they're watching the teacher, she talks to them, and you hear them try to talk to her, but they can't.
2: These kids had no way to communicate.
6: Couldn't they learn how to read?
2: They could if you knew what they were understanding, and they have no way to communicate that to you.
3: The only thing all these kids had were pictures that they could point at. They had a picture of a toilet, a picture of food, a picture of a drink, a picture of a bed. They were limited to that kind of communication, but
6: I knew they were bright. But if they couldn't move and they couldn't speak, how, how would you know?
3: My uh, insight on that was the twinkle in their eyes
6: but she says a lot of doctors and nurses at the time thought i was crazy thought there really wasn't much going on inside these kids heads
3: you know they thought i was projecting into the children
6: what she needed she said was a way to get through to them and so one day she was at the library with a colleague and they come across this dusty old volume that had never been checked out called you guessed it
3: the symbolics
6: And what did you first think when you saw
3: it? Oh boy, I can I get back to the group? How fast can I get back to the group with this? Really? This is exactly what we need
6: So do you remember what the first symbols were?
3: I think it was I and you
6: I looks kind of like a standing person
3: An upright line
6: Small horizontal line at the base Yep Next
3: to it, the number, number one, one
6: Which means first person You is the same symbol, but with a number two for second person
3: And then they had to have a verb and it was love.
6: Heart with an air through it.
3: So now they've got a sentence, I love you. One of our mothers, says the happiest moment she's ever had with her child, was when her child came home and said, I love you. You know, so.
6: Shirley and her staff started to add more symbols. <laughs> they caught on. And pretty soon they'd created this giant laminated chart.
3: It had I... And you, and he, she, we, and they. Then it had mother, father, grandma, grandpa, doctor, nurse, teacher, therapist, postman, fireman, uh, librarian, dentist. Eventually, they added adjectives. Happy, sad, and frustrated. All the verbs. You had love, and like, and hate, want, need, understand. Pretty soon, the kids started to
2: do amazing things with simple combinations.
6: They started to improvise. Shirley remembers asking one kid. Terry Martin, what did he want to be for Halloween? Terry pointed first at the symbol for creature. A creature, not a person. Then he pointed at the symbol for... Drinks. Then? Blood. Then? Night. A creature who drinks blood at night. Right. He wanted to be a vampire. Ah.
3: He spelt a new word.
6: It sounds like an explosion with these kids. It was. It was. For the first time, she says, she could actually... Talk to them, like, know who they were.
3: Yeah, you got to know who the leaders were in the Uh, classroom, those who wanted to help others, those who copied others.
6: And it was around then that she and the other teachers decided to send Charles Bliss that letter.
3: We were sharing our excitement for this gift he'd given to the children. You know, he was in Australia. He was an elderly man. We had no thought that he would come and visit us. Uh, You know, it didn't enter our mind. But Charles Bliss, he was delighted.
1: He had battled for so long for recognition, and now he had it.
5: He
2: mortgages his house and flies over.
5: I was so happy there, and I played my mandolin and told them jokes. He dances around and kisses everybody effusively. And they laughed and laughed and laughed their head off.
6: He had long conversations with the kids
3: in cymbals. He was very happy about the children.
5: Joy! Joy! That's just joy.
6: But somewhere along the way, he notices something. Shirley Shirley and the teachers had begun to augment the system. They'd begun to add their own symbols, such as...
3: The opposite meaning symbol.
6: This allowed the kids to take one of Bliss's standard symbols and just invert the meaning.
3: Opposite of happy, sad. Opposite of up, down. Opposite of in, out. Seemed to her this would effectively double the number of adjectives. Which would be great for the kids. And we developed rules for how to combine
6: symbols, for how to be more precise with the symbols. Yeah. she threw in some new pronouns that were missing.
3: The difference between he and him and his. In short, I would make the adaptations I needed to make. From the very beginning, we were using it to meet the children's needs.
6: Their specific needs.
3: And, of course, that is not what he had in his mind.
6: He wanted a system that was universal. Every change that she made created, like, a a separate dialect.
3: He would get very emotional about
6: it. So when he got back to Australia, he started...
3: Writing all these letters.
6: Basically taking issue with her changes and her failure to understand how his system works. Meanwhile... Thanks to Shirley, word about Bliss's symbols had spread way beyond Canada to Hungary, France, Sweden, Israel, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe? Yeah. And then Argentina, Brazil, Finland, Iceland, Italy, Bermuda, Guam, Japan, Portugal, Spain, Netherlands, Hungary, Switzerland, Venezuela, Madagascar, Yugoslavia.
4: It spread to all these places?
6: Yeah. And in each place... The symbols would inevitably get tweaked to suit that country. For example, in Israel, Mm -hmm. because the writing goes from right to left, the bliss symbols went from right to left. Uh. But what really pained him the most, what really got him, was that these teachers were using his symbols...
2: As a step toward English.
6: Or French or German or Hebrew or whatever. It was just a way to get the kids to their native languages.
2: The teachers always saw it.
6: The way they saw it, you start the kids on bliss.
2: And then you introduce reading and letters, and eventually they're fully literate.
6: At which point, you don't need the bliss symbols. This was the ultimate insult to him. They were using his system to bring these kids back to the very thing that he was trying to get everyone away from. Evil words. Yeah.
5: If I try to explain it to them, they don't want to listen to me. They look through me. What should I do? What should I do? I don't know, I don't
6: know. And it's right about this point in the story that you start to hear a
4: different yes. Charles
6: place.
5: Shelly McNaughton has perverted my work, has perverted and perverted and perverted.
4: Is he saying perverted? Yeah.
5: She smiles, she beguiles, and she lies.
6: He kept sending Shirley and the other teachers letters, and the letters got angrier and angrier
2: this was not what the language was for. This was a universal language that had nothing to do with spoken language. You are ruining my system, you are abusing it.
6: And eventually, he decided to take matters into
3: his own hands and he traveled back to Canada He started going to the various centers where the kids were using his symbols and saying horrible things about me uh, and getting them very upset. That's when I got upset. I got upset when he got them upset.
6: Not long after, Shirley receives a summons. I
5: I have taken to court the OCCC and the BCR. Wait,
6: he sued them? Yeah.
5: I added two more defendants. Mrs. Shirley McNaughton.
6: On the tapes, he even suggests that he's going to have Shirley put away.
5: (laughs) For a whole life.
6: For life. Wow. Why was he so upset with her in particular? Well, because by this time she'd started the international organization BCI Bliss Symbol Communications International, and she felt like this was a totally unique and and powerful tool which could could and should transform lives around the world, and more teachers needed to adopt it. Definitely. What was he asking for? Did he? Want he
3: it? wanted us to use the symbols in his way.
6: So in 1975, the BCI won a license agreement to use the symbols in the workbooks for the kids. But Charles Bliss...
5: They should all be pulped.
6: ...didn't give up.
5: They should all be pulped.
6: He published endless tirades and sent them out to anybody who would Let's listen.
5: Please unite in helping to eradicate all falsifications of the Bliss symbol system.
6: All in all, this went on for over a decade.
2: And... The administration of the program where Shirley was working was desperate to make him go away. He had basically destroyed the program.
6: And so in 1982, he and the BCI finally come
3: to an agreement. It was a financial settlement that satisfied him. What was the financial settlement? $160,000. Wow. Wow. You know, we were a little program in the basement of the Ontario Crippled Children's Center. We were, you know, just a classroom.
4: Wow, that. So a guy who wanted to save the world ends up robbing a bunch of disabled kids. I mean, that's kind of putting it crudely, but that's how that's how it feels. Uh, basically, that's the. Yeah. Did the symbols ever go anywhere?
2: Well, there was a lot of excitement about it in the beginning, but it never spread very far. It's used now at a few schools in in Canada and Sweden, a couple other places, Uh, but it never went very far because he was constantly taking it down at every turn.
6: But here's what I find most surprising. When When I talked to Shirley, she didn't have any bitterness toward him. Not even in the worst moments.
3: When we were having the final legal um, action, we'd go through that in the morning, and as the lawyers were packing up their papers, Charles Bliss would reach across the table, and he'd say, Shirley, will you help me? And uh,
6: So she'd go to lunch with him, sit with him.
3: And then he asked me if I would come to his hotel that night and put the eardrops in his ears, and I did that every night. He was... Oh involved with this thing that's just the way it was
6: and it wasn't just that she takes care of people for a living you know she she felt and still feels that Charles Bliss had created something really new in the world she even told me that when she uses bliss symbols she actually thinks differently yes definitely
3: really definitely what's different oh I just think so much more about what a word means and it, it's it's like poetry in its purest form. Um, I've been playing with stained glass down here in my retirement and, and you can you know, you can just take the symbols and put them into one composite and they say things that only art can say. It's beautiful. They transmit a meaning that is beyond any words.
4: Thanks to producer Tim Howard and Erica Okrant, author of In the Land of Invented Languages. We'll be right back.
0: Bliss is having friends and family you can rely on. My name is Libby Graham, and I am calling from the side of the road in Dallas, Texas, awaiting rescue. This is Ginger, a
3: socially awkward introvert from Cabot, Arkansas.
0: Bliss is
3: one day in which I do not have to interact with another human being.
5: Bliss is political ignorance. This is Mahmoud from Montreal.
0: Bliss is your baby sleeping in your arms.
2: Hi, this is Erica Okren.
3: Ah, uh, just a minute here.
2: Radiolab is supported in
3: part. Radiolab is supported in part. The
2: Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world.
3: More information about Sloan can be found at www.sloan.org. Hope that works for you. Thanks.
0: End of message. Radio Lab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? Go to ZBiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's ZBiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off.
6: This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza.
4: Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas.
5: Students
6: and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios.
2: Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Wait, wait, wait!
4: Don't. In... Shh, okay. shh, shh, shh. Let me just hit record. Okay, and uh, what were you saying spontaneously a moment ago? <laughs> hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab, and today, bliss. And in our last segment, we met a guy who dreamt of a perfect world where words could never muck things up. Got a little carried away. Yeah. So let's forget about dreams. Forget about them. Now we're going to look for perfection right here in the physical world.
1: Okay, so 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 this story
4: and we're going to do it with the perfect person Latif Nasser.
1: It begins with a with a birthday present. Mm. It's February 9th, 1880, 6 miles outside the tiny town of Jericho, Vermont, and we're on a farm, a family farm, uh, uh, the Bentley family farm. And this scrawny 15-year-old kid named Wilson gets a microscope from his mother. Mm. So it's February and it's Vermont, and so naturally the first thing this kid does is he grabs a handful of snow, picks out a, a single flake, and he puts it under the microscope. And what he sees is is the most beautiful thing he, he's ever seen. It's, it's ethereal and, and, and perfect. He he calls them m- masterpieces, as, as if they're these you know, great works of art. He calls
4: them that in his 15-year-old diary. Well,
1: or? looking back, he he talked about that moment and what he was thinking when he when he sort of first saw it. Mm. But obviously, you know, within minutes or maybe even seconds, these masterpieces just disappeared, without leaving any evidence that they that they ever existed. They just sort of evaporate. Huh. And as he remembers it, he he sort of decides then and there that he's going to dedicate his whole life to to documenting these masterpieces. Otherwise, no one will ever know they even existed.
4: He's going to spend
1: his whole life documenting snowflakes? Yeah. It's a yeah. good life, Jed, and it pays well. Yeah. Right, that's exactly what his father said. His father thought he was, you know, he was just was lazy and didn't want to do the farming chores. <laughs> oh, I see. His father says, "Milk the goats," and he goes, "No, Dad, yeah,
4: no. the beauty, the beauty." Right,
1: right. And apparently, he was a re- he was really good at digging potatoes, but he just sort of was so busy futzing around with his microscope that he, you know, <laughs> I don't like this kid. I don't like him. It offends
5: <laughs> your work ethic. It
1: does. So what happens next? So, so he takes his microscope and he. He moves it to this unheated woodshed behind the house, um, and and he starts sketching these snowflakes, right? Mm. And while, while he's sketching, he, he can't even breathe because he was worried that his breath would melt his specimen. So he's sort of holding his breath and 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 drawing these you know these extremely complex crystals that that can take you maybe you know maybe an hour to draw, but but depending on the temperature, the humidity, the size of the crystal, he had. At most, he had five minutes. Mm. Right. At the end of that, he he looks at them all and and he's not satisfied. He just felt like he wasn't doing it justice. You know what, what he calls these like miracles of beauty. So Bentley persuades his mother, who persuades his father, to buy him a camera.
4: Wait, like, wait, 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 wait. 1880. We're in February 1880. Have we entered into the, in the era of picture
1: taking? Just just barely and for a farming family this was like a lot of money but they buy it for him and he gets it and he sort of jerry-rigs it to the microscope and at age 19 wilson bentley is the first person ever in history to photograph a snowflake
6: okay i'm going to cue the snowflake celebration music here (laughs)
1: right from then on, basically for the next 46 winters until he died, every, every snowfall, every blizzard, this guy Bentley would stand in the doorway of his little shack, uh, holding out a wooden tray uh, with, with thick mittens, because he, he would wear these, they're almost like oven mitts, to, to, to make sure that his none of his body heat would kind of leak out and, and inadvertently melt any of the snow so he'd sort of stand there and sort of give it a once over with his eye if nothing was promising he he basically had a a turkey feather and he would sort of just wipe it clean with this turkey feather until he did find something he liked and th- and then he would he would take this tiny little wooden rod and he would just sort of really delicately tap the center of the crystal and and like really 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 gently lift it off and then transfer it onto the, onto a glass slide so that he could put it under the microscope and he could uh, photograph it over the course of his life he basically photographed about 5000 snow crystals for his whole life he was just a farmer doing this kind of as a hobby uh, but he sold copies of these photos for 5 cents a pop to places like Harvard and the British Museum and the US weather bureau research journals magazines like nature and national geographic and i mean You've already seen the photos. Like you've you've gotten them on a Christmas card. They're on your like ugly Christmas sweater in your closet somewhere. Um, <laughs> Robert's wearing
4: a shirt with them on right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, they're 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 everywhere. They're beautiful, symmetrical, really clean and complex. A lot of the greatest scientists who ever lived, like Descartes and Kepler and Hooke, they all tried to sketch and draw and kind of capture the essence of snowflakes. But none of them could do it as well as this one obsessive loner from Jericho, Vermont, whose photos were perceived to be kind of more faithful to nature than 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 anybody else's. But that was until. Um, this other guy came on the scene, this German guy. Cue the Uh, other guy, germanic theme music. Yes, yes. He was a German meteorologist named Gustav Hellmann. Gustav Hellmann. Not of the mayonnaise fame, I don't believe.
4: Um, (laughs) I hadn't even thought of that,
2: actually.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So Hellmann, is is he a contemporary of Bentley? Yeah. He is. And he's working on his own
1: book about weather. And so he hires a, a kind of a micro photographer who's another German guy named Richard Neuhaus.
6: A micro. He's so a very teeny photographer who he kept on his desk. Yeah,
1: he's, he's microscopic himself. <laughs> uh, and he just takes normal sized photographs. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, he hires this guy. And, and they take a bunch of photos using basically similar technology, a camera and a microscope, essentially. But what they find is totally different. They they do not find the, the the elegant, symmetrical, ideal snow crystals that Bentley found. Huh. The, the crystals they found were like flawed, lopsided, usually like broken. Hmm. And the way I think of it, it, it was like a Martian who, who had only ever seen like glossy fashion magazines had just been given some like random family photo album. And, and it was like, oh, wow, this is, they're not, so pretty like these are kind of <laughs> ugly <laughs> you know <laughs> these humans these humans they're not all <laughs> symmetrical but these Germans they, they basically called him out they, they basically thought Bentley was a fraud there was a particular way that Bentley prepared his photographs. What he would do is he would use uh, a pen knife to scrape the negative around the snow crystal, which is what gave it that kind of nice black background because he thought it would kind of put it in maybe starker relief. Um, and, and, and the German guys said that's it's it's misleading, that it kind of mutilates the snowflakes.
4: Huh. Um, oh, wait, so he's photographing these snowflakes and then significantly messing with the photograph?
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. So th- here's a quote from the f- photographer who said quote uh, in many images Bentley did not limit himself to improving the outlines he let his knife play deep inside the heart of the crystals so that fully arbitrary figures emerged.
4: Oh. Oh, so he we- Well, I don't know that doesn't seem so uh, no longer a candid, is it?
1: Well, that's that's the question. So then but then so they basically lob this and th- this is kind of going in these journals. Uh, uh, but Bentley basically launches a counterattack. And what he says is that, in fact, those guys are wrong, that not correcting your photographs was, and he used this word like perverse. To him, why wouldn't you remove specks of dust or other imperfections? Why photograph a broken snowflake when you could photograph a complete one? So this is a quote from Bentley. He said, A true scientist wishes above all to have his photographs as true to nature as possible. And if retouching will help in this respect, then it is fully justified.
4: So he thought his retouched snowflakes were truer than the normal ones?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the scientist is supposed to be kind of this very experienced, uh, almost like a sage, who has seen every different variation on a snowflake, but can sort of Bring that all together in one drawing, one sketch, one photograph, and that's the true snowflake. So if
2: I
6: brought him a slightly gloppy snowflake and said, "Look, this is what fell on my nose, and this yeah. is a true snowflake because it actually fell from the sky, and it's you know it was unenhanced."
5: Yeah, he would say well, that. He would snowfl-
1: say, "Robert, you're you're an amateur. Like this is, <laughs> this is not good work. You know, this is an aberration. This is an abnormality. Why would you choose to kind of highlight an abnormality as opposed to kind of this this true ideal snowflake? You know?
4: And does that one exist?" <laughs> I mean, that's the key question for me. Like, does the ideal snowflake exist in nature? You think there are such things as exquisitely beautiful I would like to think snow that there are.
1: Uh, no, so I, I think if, if my facts are are right, the, the world snowflake expert is actually in, in Pasadena, California. All right. Check, 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 check. So, in, and, in sunny Southern California? Yeah. Uh, I'm wearing a T-shirt. I have sunscreen lathered, and I am going to talk to the World Authority on snow. Hey, how are you? His name is Ken Liebrecht. He's a, a professor of physics at Caltech. He uh, is, in a way, he's like the modern-day Wilson Bentley, because he takes a ton of, of snowflake pictures. I've taken about 10,000 now. So. And, uh, and he actually makes snowflakes. Oh, yeah. Artificially. Okay, wow. So this is a giant tank. This is of nitrogen here? Never mind that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a,
2: that's
1: and to get to your question about the ideal snowflake,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a few things. So number one, there are a bajillion different Dendritic. kinds.
7: Dendritic, crystal stellar dendrites, needles and columns and hollow columns
1: and dissected and, uh, plates. So that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is that. Snowflakes are never static. They're never one thing. So at every single moment as it falls to the Earth, it's either growing or shrinking, depending on the kind of trajectory through the different pockets of weather as it's moving down. So there is no real platonic ideal form of a snowflake because it's, it's so in flux. I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect snowflake. But... That doesn't stop Ken Liebrecht from from looking.
7: You know, I tried up in Tahoe and Japan, Vermont, Michigan. He travels
1: all over the world looking for Bentley's perfect flakes.
7: Alaska, I've been to Alaska, Sweden. But my favorite spot is northern Ontario. Little town called Cochrane, population five thousand four hundred eighty-seven.
1: So where do you go in Cochrane? Do you just just anywhere? They're just falling all over the place.
7: Mostly it's the it's the uh, parking lot of my my, my hotel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he says there's a lot of waiting involved. It only really snows well about once a week. And even then, things have to be Goldilocks perfect.
7: Uh, if the clouds are too high, then they evaporate a little on the way down. They don't look very pretty. Or If the clouds are too light or too heavy. That's bad, too. And a lot of times the temperature's wrong. If you want those Christmas card supermodel
1: snowflakes, uh, y- you need to have exactly... Minus 15, that's 5 degrees Fahrenheit. You need to have high humidity, not so much wind, so that they'll putter down slowly and have more time to grow.
7: But every once in a while, I mean, when the conditions are right, yeah. you go outside all, you know, hopeful and <laughs> anticipating. And it's like, oh, crap there's nothing garbage out here so you back go back inside and read some more email and you come back a half an hour later nope still lousy <laughs> and a half hour later nope still lousy and you, you know you do this for hours and then all of a sudden they'll get really good and then and then I just out there fr- frantically trying to collect as many as I can uh-huh. well one of the things I like to think about is is you know here I am with my little piece of cardboard in the middle of a a continent <laughs> where it's snowing all the time. And so I am catching some incredibly small number of these things for a brief period and, and getting some really cool pictures. And so you kind of wonder, what the, what else is out there? What are you missing? I mean, imagine just all the beautiful little works of art that are, that are just falling down, totally unnoticed, and then they just disappear I mean stuff that it's far prettier than you know the pictures I have cuz they're out there. You know they're out there statistically. They're out there and so you know there's just an awful lot of really gorgeous things that just are like you say they're just totally ephemeral and you'll never see them and they're falling constantly. So uh, you sort of want to just stop the world and you know go look at them. I mean, <laughs>
4: to Latif Nasser, and to Ken Liebrich, who wrote the book, The Secret Life of a Snowflake.
6: This is Matt and Neely Dawson from Asheville, North Carolina, and bliss is this sound. That's the sound of my seven-month-year-old daughter reacting to my puppy dog licking her feet. Hi, my name is Igor, and I'm calling from Novi Sad, Serbia. Bliss
1: is Indiana Jones, all three parts. Hi, Radio Lab. This is Steve Strogatz.
7: Bliss is the taste of hot pastrami
1: at Katz's Deli in the Lower East Side of New York City. We live four or five hours away from New York and don't get there very often. And so I spend a lot of time in between visits thinking about that first taste of the hot pastrami. So for me, That's bliss. I get to think about some kind of almost unattainable perfection. Except then it is attainable. I just show
6: up and there it is.
3: This is Mary Roach and I'm in Oakland, California, and I have a list of bliss. My bliss list. Number one, uh, laughing uncontrollably. Number two, zero gravity. Number four, the first ten seconds in a hot, hot bath. Number nine, a raw oyster. Very fresh, but no larger than an infant's ear.
0: This is Izana calling from London. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bresler, Rachel Cusick, David Gable, Bethel Habti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kilty, Robert Krollwich, Julia Longoria, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Kelly Prime, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Shima Oliai, Audrey Quinn, and Neil Dinesha. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris.
1: Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will
2: at templeton.org slash podcast.